Hello. It is a uh, it's a real privilege to be here this morning, and I want to thank you for having me. It's a privilege to preach the gospel to any assembly of God's people. Uh, but coming here this morning uh, for me is especially a privilege. Uh, I want to thank Eric for your kind introduction. The truth is, is that Eric is a good, good friend. And I don't know if you guys know this about your pastor, uh, but he does a lot of pastoring to the other ministers in our presbytery. And he has, in some ways, been a pastor to me. So to stand here where he stands and to address you with the word of the Lord is a real privilege. So thanks for having me. Been here a few times now. It's good to be back. I see some familiar faces. And uh, it's good to see you. I don't want to waste this opportunity because it is a privilege. So what I want to do is I just want to tell you about one of the most beautiful things that Jesus ever said. Really short, simple, little statement that falls right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in a passage we know as the Beatitudes. And it just happens to be something that it's one of those things that the longer you look at it, the more beautiful it gets. So for the next 25 minutes or so, let's stare straight into the word of the Lord. And let's let it overwhelm us. Um, The passage for this morning is from Matthew 5, chapter 6. This is what Jesus said. He said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, this morning, uh, here we are before you, ready to hear from you. I pray that you would give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see. Lord, I pray that we would, uh, this would truly be a time of worship for all of us. Lord, I pray that you would use me as an instrument that I would disappear and that all of us here would just worship you, our Lord and Savior, in this time. So I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts here together would be pleasing in your sight. You are the Lord, you are the rock, and you are the Redeemer. Amen. All right. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. It's one of the most beautiful things Jesus has ever said. It might also be one of the most forgettable. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You know, the reason it's it's easily forgettable because it sounds religious-y, doesn't it? Of course, this is something that a religious leader would say. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. It sounds religious. You know, when we read the Bible, and especially when we read things that Jesus says, oftentimes the more spiritual they sound, or the more times we've heard it sounds like something that a religious teacher would say, the more we start to tune it out. I don't know if you've ever seen the old Charlie Brown cartoons, but where Charlie Brown and his friends are sitting in the school whenever, well actually, any time on the Charlie Brown 
cartoons, when a grown-up speaks, we don't hear words, do we? We just hear wah, 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 wah. Because the little kids aren't hearing what the grown-ups are saying. And oftentimes, statements like this made by Jesus, the more simple they are, and the more familiar they are, maybe the more religious, religious-y that they sound, the easier they are to tune out. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. What does that even mean? How do we even begin to hear that? Well, when I was in seminary, I learned a Bible study trick that has totally revolutionized my life as a Christian. And what I'd like to do is, because this is a passage that's so easy to go in one ear and out the other, I want to teach you this little Bible study trick, and then we're going to use it together to move through this sentence from Jesus slowly, slow down enough to where we can take a look at it and maybe see it in a new way. So here's the trick. It's called... Now, this sounds very academic, but I assure you it's not as academic as you think. The trick is called historical grammatical hermeneutics. Okay, that sounds very complicated. Let me put it this way. Hermeneutics, that's the, the, the science of how we interpret what we read. So her, the hermeneutics part, that's just how you should read this. Historical grammatical, that describes the way we should read this. You know, when we read statements... In the Bible, it's good for us to remember that these statements were made in a certain time and place in history. And when we read the Bible, we should think about it historically. So this statement from Jesus, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. We need to think, where did Jesus, where and when did Jesus say this? Is there anything about the time period or the place that would affect the way we interpret this? So. We take what we know about uh, the first century world. We take what we know about Jesus and, and the culture that he was speaking in. And we try to think about it in that way. So historical, grammatical. Grammatical, that, that's language, the mechanics of language. You know, Jesus, we believe by the confession of our faith that Jesus is the word of God made flesh. That Jesus is God's big communication to us. We believe that the Bible is God's written word. It's right at the the bottom floor of our faith is the belief that God uses language to reach out to us and to, to clear out a path of access for us to come into his presence. So when we study the Bible, we hear statements from Jesus. We should think about those things historically. When and where did Jesus make the statement? But also we should think about Really zoom into the language itself. How is this sentence structured? What do these words mean? And when we think about it historically and grammatically, together that should inform how we interpret it. So, historical grammatical hermeneutics. You are now master of historical grammatical hermeneutics. Yeah, it's exciting. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to use the historical grammatical hermeneutical method to get ourselves to slow down so we can pay attention to what Jesus is saying and not miss it. Okay, are you ready? You guys look like you're just thrilled to go on this journey together. Okay, it, it is thrilling. Arms and legs inside the vehicle, please. Okay, here we go. Uh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be satisfied. Blessed. Blessed. Let's get historical grammatical with this. 
If you get on the computer and you start looking at, you know, maybe you pull up uh, Bible Gateway or something like or If you're fancy and have Logos Bible software and you wanted to get into what this word blessed means, maybe in the original language, you can you can dig deep enough where you'll you'll see that in the English Bible, it says blessed or blessed. But the actual word from the original text when this was written is makarios, which is a Greek word that means happy. And happy is an accurate translation of that word. Some of your Bibles might even say, happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So there's something about the verse that we're already learning here. This, is, this verse is about happiness. It's about how to be happy. But we continue looking at this grammatically. We look at it historically and we can see that this is more than just a fleeting feeling of happiness. This is more than just pleasurable feelings. You know, this was written in Greek. Makarios is a Greek word. But we can look historically and we can remember that Jesus wasn't a Greek. He was a Jew. In fact, Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. That was literally his job at this time. And the New Testament book of Matthew was written in Greek. We know historically because Greek was the language of trade in the first and business in the first century. And Jesus probably knew a little bit of Greek because before he had a job being a Jewish rabbi, he had a job working as a carpenter and he had to be able to navigate the business world as as a carpenter. He probably knew a little bit of Greek, but he wasn't teaching in Greek and he certainly didn't think like a Greek. He wasn't Hellenistic. So what does blessed mean in a more Hebrew sense? Does it mean the same thing as it means the Greek sense of happiness? Is, is the Hebrew meaning of that the same? Well, we can look and you can get on the Internet and do some research and you can find out that the Hebrew word for blessed is Asher. And the Hebrew idea of what it means to be blessed before God, what it means to find true happiness is related to the, an idea of being on the right path. It's a happiness from knowing that you're headed in the right direction. That you're oriented in a way that makes sense. Not just a fleeting happiness, but a deep, settled, sit-down-on-the-inside assurance that you're going the right way. You know, when I was in high school, my last year of high school... I was trying to decide, I wanted to go to college. I was trying to decide what I was going to do for college. And my parents really wanted me to go to one school. I didn't really want to go to that school because all my friends were going to the University of Memphis. Memphis is where I grew up. University of Memphis is kind of like PSU in Portland. It's a big commuter school. And I really wanted to stay in Memphis and go to the University of Memphis. Well, we were trying to figure this out. Me and my parents. And one day something happened that I completely did not deserve. I don't even know how this happened. I got a letter in the mail from the University of Memphis. And I opened it up. And lo and behold, by God's mysterious grace, I got a full ride scholarship to the University of Memphis. It was an academic scholarship, which is kind of weird because I didn't make straight A's. I, I have no idea how this happened. But I got a full ride scholarship to the University of Memphis, and that settled where I was going to go to college. Well, I'm not that good with time management. I'm not really a planner. And when I was in college, uh, I wasn't a very self-disciplined person. In fact, my priorities were not with going to school. They were with other things. 
So I sort of just went to school uh, for four and a half years without any sort of aim or direction. I ended up changing my major halfway through. I failed some classes and wasted some time and kind of messed around a little bit. And after four and a half years, nine semesters, I ran out of scholarship money and I was three semesters away from graduating. So I dropped out. Now, dropping out of college when it was given to you free as a gift is a horrible idea. Don't do it. Dropping out of college only three semesters from graduating is an even worse idea. Don't do it. But I did it. And I thought, during that time, Eric mentioned I played guitar. I really wanted to be a musician for my job. And I was already playing gigs around town. I had some connections and felt like I was doing pretty good. Um, so I dropped out of school and I thought, I don't need a college degree anyway. I'm, I'm going to be a rock and roller. Rock and rollers don't need college degrees. So I got a job working at a guitar shop. Uh, and it was an awesome guitar store. I loved that job. And I played gigs around town. And uh, played in several bands and it was, it was a really great time. But during this time, uh, I felt great amounts of anxiety. Even though I was doing what I loved, it was a really anxious time. Probably related to the fact that I was given college as a gift and I sort of just blew it off. Well, uh, I dropped out in 2006. Well, the next year, 2007, I was at a friend's house at a Christmas Eve party. And I was having a conversation with my friend John. Now, I had had several, I was at the end of a stretch of several bad weeks. I lost a part-time job that I had. A band that I was playing in had recently broken up. I was uh, in a serious relationship with a girl. We had broken up. And uh, I didn't technically have a place to live. I was in between places to live. So this was like a really bad several weeks. And my buddy John looks at me at this Christmas Eve party and he says, Hey, Charlie, what are you going to do? And I thought he meant like, what was I going to do later that night? I was like, well, it's Christmas Eve. You know, I'm going to go home and uh, to Scott's house and crash on the couch because I'm in between apartments. And uh, maybe in the morning I'll get up and I'll drive to my parents. He's like, no, Charlie, what are you going to do with your life? I don't know if you've noticed, but your life is kind of a wreck. And I thought, oh, yeah, I've noticed. And we sat down to talk. And somewhere in that conversation, I don't know how to explain this. Maybe some of you have had an experience like this. I sat down and I was talking to John about what I should do with my life. And all of a sudden, I became very aware of the presence of God in the room. And I remember listening to John and knowing that this was a crisis moment in my life. And somewhere in the conversation, as a joke, I told John, hey, you know what's really crazy? My life is such a wreck. When I was a little kid, I wanted to grow up and be a pastor. And John didn't laugh. He looked right at me and he said, Charlie, that's it. You missed it. And then he starts telling me stories of all of these times over the years when I had uh, shared the gospel with people. When I had prayed for people and they begin to change. When I had almost accidentally led people in worship by helping them to look to Jesus in various situations. Times in my life where I was totally messed up and I'm pointing people to Jesus. And as John tells me these stories, I realize that 
It, God was doing something in my heart. And in that time, I talked with John at his house on Christmas Eve of 2007. But somehow, I had a divine appointment with God. And I left his house on Christmas Eve. I, I went and I gathered up my stuff at my buddy Scott's house. I drove to where my parents lived in North Mississippi. I walked into the kitchen. I said, Mom and Dad, I don't know what happened last night, but I think that I somehow heard from the Lord and, and I'm done running. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to surrender my life to, to pursue being a pastor. I'll go back to school, whatever it takes. And my parents said, finally, we knew this day would come. We knew this about you all along. We just didn't want to pressure you. And it was like this great weight and this great relief came upon me. And shortly after that, I uh, got a job where I can have some time, where I can get back to work. And I went back to school at the University of Memphis and I finished out that time. Now that year, after that experience, I went back to finish my degree. It was also my first year of marriage. It was also my first year in ministry. I got a job as a worship director at a church. And a church that was in the process of imploding. A really unhealthy church. And first year in ministry at an unhealthy church. First year in marriage. And the year of going back to school. Considering, considering my workload, it was one of the hardest years of my life. But I want to tell you that it was a time in my life where I felt so much peace. It was incredible. I, I can't think of another time in my life where work was so hard, but I felt so much confidence and peace. And you know why that was? It was because finally I was on the right path. I was oriented in the way that God had called me to be. I was ready to be obedient, to do something that he was leading me to do. That's what blessedness being blessed means in a Hebrew worldview, on the right path. Not that you have everything figured out, not that you have done everything correctly, but you are doing the best you know how to follow God where he's leading you. Blessed on the right path. Okay, let's get back to the verse. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Hunger and thirst. Okay, I think we're human beings. I think we, we know what that means. Raise your hand if you've never been hungry or thirsty. Nobody. 100% audience participation there. That was awesome. Good job. Okay, hunger and thirst. Even though we're familiar with it, let's not blow past it. Let's, let's look at this historically, grammatically. Okay, grammatically, I think we got it. Hungering and thirst, we know what that is. That's a universal human thing. But historically... Jesus was, this is the Sermon on the Mount. He was in Galilee up on some kind of mountain, some kind of mount, giving a sermon. And he's giving a sermon to people who are largely, um, uh, this would have been largely Hebrew people in Roman-occupied Galilee. Uh, so this would have been some upper-class people, but by and large people who worked outside People who, uh, this is a time before cars, so people who walked around a lot. Uh, we know from looking through the New Testament that Galilee was a region with lots of little small towns and people traveled between them. So they're, they're people who are used to working outside and then maybe walking over five miles to grandma's house in the next Galilee town. These are the people who Jesus was talking to. And Galilee, like the rest of Palestine, Israel, is relatively arid, right? Right? It's, there's a lot of desert going on. 
So look at this historically. Jesus says, blessed on the right path are those who hunger and thirst. And he's speaking to a people who would have known hunger or thirst, especially thirst, in a way that we don't really know today. Unless you work outside in a desert and walk everywhere, which maybe some of you do, we need to wrap our imaginations around this. Well, this last week I read a story that helped me to wrap my imagination around what Palestine, Israel, desert country, hungry and thirsty would be like. Uh, I want to share it with you. It's, the sto- it's a story uh, from a guy named Major V. Gilbert, a British general or a British major in, during World War I during the Palestinian offensive. And in his memoir, he tells the story of the, the, the battle around a town called Shariah. British and Australian and New Zealander troops, he led a coalition. They're fighting against the Ottoman Turks. They're trying to take this town of Shariah. Well, here's what happened. First, they were south of Shariah in a city called Beersheba. And there's, this is a famous World War I battle, the big battle of Beersheba. And Major V. Gilbert and his troops won that battle. They drove out the Ottoman Turks from Beersheba and they took the city. Well, right after that battle, instead of just regrouping in Beersheba, celebrating their victory, Major V. Gilbert decided that he would lead the, troop, the troops directly in pursuing the Ottoman Turks as they retreated. And the Turks retreated to the north, and right after fighting this huge battle, Major Gilbert and all of his men, thousands of men, pursued the Turks north towards a city called Shariah. Well, as they trekked across the desert, chasing after the Turks as they fled, in all the confusion, or maybe they were just going really fast, the camel train that carried all their water started to lag behind, and eventually got so far behind that they were lost. But Major Gilbert and his troops didn't stop because they were chasing the Ottoman Turks. And that was more important to them at the time. Well, as they traveled north, they realized that they were getting more and more thirsty. And you can read in Gilbert's memoir, he talks about how uh, the men started to get uh, their tongues all started to swell. And their lips started to get chapped and turn purple and burst. People started to complain about headaches. Uh, people, men started mysteriously disappearing from the ranks and they realized that men had fallen down or fainted from dehydration and they were so consumed with where they were going they left them behind. And as they marched north to take the Turks, they began to realize that they had an enemy that was worse than the Turks. It was thirst in a desert. Listen to Major Gilbert's words as he talks about this. They're in the desert, they're dying of dehydration, they're trying to chase the Turks, and then all of a sudden, over the horizon, they see the city of Shariah. And this is what he said. As we approached the city of Shariah, we began to fight. We fought that day as men fighting for their lives. The first objects that met our view were great stone cisterns in Shariah full of cold, clear drinking water. And in the night air, as they approached, the sound of water running into the water tanks. Imagine maybe a big water tower there. The sound of water in the tanks could be distinctively heard. And it was maddening in its nearness. 
So the men begin to hear, the, they see the big water tower, they hear the water running through the tower, and they begin to almost go mad. So they start to fight against the Turks to take the city, and Gilbert says they fought as men fighting for their lives. Even though they were clearly in the majority, even though the Turks had already surrendered, they fought with a kind of desperate madness. They took the city, all of the men rushed to the big water tanks, and they fell into formation. This is beautiful. They fell into formation and all of the sick and the wounded got to drink from the water tanks and fill their canteens first. Then after that, anyone that was going to go right back out to guard duty filled their canteens. And then after that, company by company, the regular troops. Well, it took four hours to get through the whole line for all of the men to fill their canteens. Now, this is a really cool World War I story if you're into that kind of thing. And that's awesome. But the reason I really like it is it's a reminder of the fact that feeling thirsty might be normal. But being thirsty in a desert without water, that's not normal. That's war. That's life-threatening. That will drive you crazy. You would do anything if... You're desert thirsty enough for a drink of water. You would fight against a city. You would stand in a four-hour line, which might be standing in a four-hour line. That's pretty terrible. Uh, you, You would do anything for water. Desert thirsty, fighting for your life thirsty. When Jesus looks out at the crowd that day in Galilee, at desert familiar, desert dwelling, working outside, walking around all the time, people, and he says, blessed on the right path, are those who hunger and thirst. He was saying something pretty significant. Well, let me ask you something. Have you yourself, have you ever felt spiritually dehydrated? Have you ever been in a place in your life where you begin to be aware that you were in need of God or something's missing? Then next thing you know... You are desperate for some sort of spiritual sustenance and you would be willing to fight. You would be willing to wait. You would be willing to do anything to be for your desire for something more spiritually to be quenched. Have you ever felt like that? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is striking what Jesus is saying. When you feel spiritually dehydrated to the point of madness, to the point of being willing to do anything, you are actually on the right path. That means something is good is happening in your life. Now, this isn't like any other spiritual teacher that we've ever heard. Emptiness, maddening desire for something more. That means you are in the right place. That means God is blessing you. All right, let's keep going. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For righteousness. Now, righteousness is a regular word in the English language. We all probably were familiar with the word righteousness. It means, like, really good, right? Something's righteous, it's, like, really good. Well... Historical grammatical, we want to look at it in context, it's in the Bible, and we can look throughout the whole Bible and we can see that if we started in Genesis and we like went on a 
big Bible study retreat time, and we went all the way through, spent all day cataloging every time we find the word righteousness, Genesis, all the way to Revelation. You can do that while you stand in the four-hour line. Um, You would see that overall, there's really two kinds of righteousness in the Bible. The Bible talks about righteousness 99.999% of the time. It's referring to one of two things. Uh, well, it's referring to, yeah, there's two ways to look at it. The first is what we would call outward righteousness. And this is the, right, this is the righteousness, the rightness that comes with following God's law. Righteousness in the Bible is doing the right kinds of things. Are you familiar with this idea? So Moses delivers the Ten Commandments to the people. He talks all about God's law to them, ways that they're supposed to live rightly. That's righteousness. Uh, When the psalmist in Psalm 119 says, Oh Lord, how I love your law. I meditate on it day and night. He's talking about loving God's directions for people to live in. Ten Commandments, Book of Deuteronomy, all the places we like to speed through when we're doing our Bible in a year thing, right? Loving God's law. That's outward righteousness. It has to do with the things that we do. Well, outward righteousness... um, Results in flourishing relationships with others. That's why it's so great. Did you guys know this? Did you know that when you don't steal, when you don't covet, you don't commit adultery, you don't lie, that that helps your relationships with other people? And life usually goes pretty well. So outward righteousness is a good thing. Now, in the Bible, that's not the only kind of righteousness. There's another kind of righteousness in the Bible. And we read all about this, especially off, off the Bible, but especially in the New Testament. This is what we could call inward righteousness. Inward righteousness is not just doing the right things. It's a heart that's been uh, declared to be in right relationship with God. It's a heart that has the barrier between the heart and the Lord is removed by God himself because of the sacrifice and the life of Jesus Christ. And God declares a person to be right before him. This is inward righteousness. This is a product of not our actions, but faith. I think about that famous verse in Genesis that says that God, uh, that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That we know Abraham as someone in the Bible who's a righteous man, not because he did great things, but because when God spoke to him, he believed God and God counted that as righteousness. Inward righteousness. This is the kind of thing we talk about every Sunday in our churches. So, in the Bible, righteousness is outward, or it's usually inward, and usually the Bible writers are referring to one of the or to one of those two things. Well, which one do you think Jesus is referring to here when he says, "Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness"? Which which one is it? Well. Surprise, we can use our historical, grammatical, or hermeneutical skills and we can find out. Okay, uh, let, me, let me show you. Maybe you'll be excited afterwards. It's probably why I'm excited. Okay, uh, which one? Is it outward righteousness? Is it inward righteousness? Jesus, which one is it? Well, you can look, and you can look in the text, and if we were all Greek readers, because this was written in Greek... Uh, what, we would, what we would see here is there's a nuance in the Greek language, the way this sentence is structured, that gives us the answer. And actually, if we were uh, like first century Greek readers who are familiar with the Bible, that usually it's 
we're talking about outward or inward righteousness, we would be struck by this verse. When Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those verbs, hunger and thirst, usually in Greek, in a sentence like this, when you're hungering or thirsting for something, they would appear in what's called the genitive case. The, grammatically, these are partitive genitive verbs. Hunger and thirst. And the idea is, in Greek, well, in Greek, kind of like Spanish or German or French, the verbs change the way they're spelled or the way that they're presented based on their meaning. And these would be in what's called the genitive case. And the genitive case is when a verb uh, is followed by the word of or from or an equivalent to, to one of those words. That's the idea. The idea here is hunger, and as a part of the genitive, I'm hunger, hungry for a piece of bread. I'm hungry for bread from the stash of bread that you have in the back. Like if you roll into like Panera and you walk in and you're like, I, I hunger for bread. Hunger, part of the genitive. I want bread from the stash of bread in the back. I'm hungry for a piece of bread. I don't need all the bread back in the kitchen. I don't need everything you have in storage and in the freezer. I don't, I don't even need the whole loaf. I need a piece of bread. Are you with me? Partitive genitive. That's how this would normally be presented. Well, in this sentence, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And hunger and thirst are not presented in the genitive case. They're presented in something called the accusative case. Now, this is almost breaking a grammatical rule here. This is something that when Matthew wrote this, he did this on purpose. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Not genitive, not of bread, from bread. The accusative case, hunger and thirst, means I'm hungry for just bread on like an existential level. I'm hungry for, you walk into Panera, I'm hungry, accusative case, for bread. What you're saying is, I'm hungry for all the bread in the restaurant. Bring me all the bread. Walk in. Bring me the bread. I'm hungry for all of it. Bring me the bread in the back. Bring me the bread in the freezer. Bring me the whole loaf. Anything that is associated with bread in this place, bring it to me. I hunger. That's the accusative case. So when Jesus says, blessed on the right path, are those who hunger and thirst, desert hungry, desert thirsty, great desire for righteousness. He's not just talking about something that part of the righteousness in the Bible. He's not just talking about living in such a way that comes from the law. He is talking about the whole righteousness. Inward righteousness. Outward righteousness. The big idea of righteousness. Everywhere you look, righteousness. All the righteousness in the back of the restaurant. All the righteousness in the freezer. I'm hungry and thirsty for the whole thing. My desire is great. Desert hunger, desert thirsty, and I have my eyes on something larger than a little piece to satisfy me. This is not roll up with Major V. Gilbert and all of his troops and stand in the four hour line to go up and fill your little canteen. This is roll up into Shariah with Major V. Gilbert and all his troops, stand in the four hour line, and when it's your turn, white. Walk right past the little water spigot, go up the ladder, and turn around and fall backwards with a huge smile on your face right into the big water tower tank and let yourself sink into the water. This is big 
righteousness. Now, this little religious-y sounding statement that Jesus made, this is taking on a whole new meaning. Blessed on the right path are those who hunger and thirst, desert hungry, desert thirsty. Blessed on the right path are those with great maddening desire for righteousness. Not just doing the right thing. Not just knowing that you're in a good relationship with God and if you died you would go to heaven. But are hungry for the whole world to be set aright before God and others. Are hungry for a life without sin. Are hungry for good things to be going in and out of you. Are hungry for a whole new world. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, I told you this is one of the most beautiful things that Jesus has ever said. Nobody hungers and thirsts for righteousness in this way who isn't deeply aware of their need. And this is why what Jesus is saying here is so strikingly beautiful. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who did hunger used to hunger and thirst for righteousness, but since have been filled, for they have been satisfied. No. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst right now for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. The maddening desire that you experience for your heart to be reoriented to God without the hindrance of sin The maddening desire that you have experienced for the world to be set aright. To be rid of sin and dysfunction and pain. That maddening desire in itself is the blessing. You will be satisfied when you feel that. Satisfaction. Lots of people promise it, but not like this. Only Jesus looks out to people who are mad with desire for the world to be fixed, for our relationships with others to be healed, for our relationship with God to be renewed. And feeling the madness of that hunger and thirst and looking to the big righteousness that God must have in his storehouse if he is the Lord. That that place of maddening Painful desire is one of the greatest blessings that you could ever experience. Because when you feel that, you know that satisfaction is coming. And let me remind you, when it comes to hunger and thirst, the greatest satisfaction is not, doesn't come after you have eaten. It comes when you know the depth of your hunger and thirst and you go into the dining room And you sit at the table before a feast. When you sit at the feast and you say, oh, I am so hungry. Those are words of rejoicing. Because you know that satisfaction is here. And that, my friends, is the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? The whole righteousness. Do you feel the pain of sin and separation from God? Do you groan with hunger pains for the world to be set aright? You are blessed. Because you will be satisfied. 
Because Jesus, the bread of life, the source of living water, is before you as a feast. And this is the gospel. It's for you. Amen.